verses 14 and 15. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this section on page 1,363. 1,363 from the Word of God. Uh, You will perhaps remember that last Sunday we also considered 1 Timothy 3. Uh, Purposely, we return to it uh, this evening. Uh, We want to, so to speak, narrow the lens. Having considered the chapter in its entirety from a broader perspective last Sunday, we want to hone in, you might say, uh, upon verses 14 and 15. But we read the entire chapter for context's sake. We read now the Word of God. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Thus far, our reading this evening of the Word of God. A congregation, you will... Recollect that last Sunday we had the opportunity for the installation of office bearers. The installation of office bearers of elder and of deacon. And we said at one point in last Sunday's sermon that the spiritual maturity of a congregation will typically be determined by the spiritual maturity of the leadership of that congregation. So it is that the officers within the church, the elders and the deacons, they they set, so to speak, the pace, the spiritual level uh, of the congregation. Uh, But it's also important for uh, any organization uh, to know its purpose for existence. And, And these go together. For a mature organization, you must have mature leadership. That would apply also within the business world. If you were to take one of the local companies, the company will only do as well as its leaders. Wise leaders making wise decisions generally will produce a company that is thriving, whereas poor leaders making poor decisions will generally lead to a company that is struggling. Well, how do wise leaders make wise decisions? In the corporate world, 
uh, there has to be an understanding of the reason for the existence of the organization. And so it has become quite common within recent decades for an organization to have a, a purpose statement. This is why we exist. And all of the leaders especially, but really all of the participants within that organization ought to know their reason for existence. And we're just borrowing an illustration from the corporate world. But we would also say this, that within a church, within a local congregation, uh, the leaders especially, the office bearers, must know beyond any shadow of a doubt the reason for the existence of the congregation. And so we might ask ourselves, why is it that we as Covenant Reformed Church, why is it that we exist? What is our purpose? And there's a real danger, I believe, for a conservative Reformed Church that has a lengthy pedigree to fossilize. There's a real danger uh, of this, and I think this also can be illustrated uh, with a local building in town. You think of the Skolty House. Many of you perhaps are well familiar with it. And it stands there uh, on the corner of the square as a witness to the history of the city of Pella, uh, of the founding father, uh, a minister who brought his followers here to the city of refuge, seeking, we believe, religious freedom. But what does the Skolty House do today? Now, perhaps I run the risk of uh, offending a historian in our midst, and I'm in no way uh, degrading the purpose of the Skolty House, but by and large, it's a museum. Sure, you can go and you can walk through the various rooms, and you can look at the furniture. You may even, with a, a certain interest, look at perhaps the desk of Domini Skolty. Uh, and maybe you're more drawn to uh, the gardens of Maria. But unless I'm mistaken, no one's living in that house anymore. Uh, there's not the sound of footsteps of little children laughing and playing. There's not the family interaction of a husband and of a wife. And that illustrates the danger also for a conservative Reformed church. That one day someone comes and looks at us and says, oh, there's a testimony for how people used to do church. Look at that, they sing those songs. And look at that, they have those practices. Those are things we used to do. But I would suggest to us tonight that our purpose for existence is not just to be a museum for the community. That they could look in on us and say, oh yes, that's how we used to do church. Our purpose of existence is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth within this community. And it's with that type of drawing that we turn our attention to the words of our text from 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15. These things... Paul says to Timothy, I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so we have this theme tonight, conduct among the house of God. First of all, the instruction for the house of God. And then secondly, the nature of the house of God. 
And then thirdly, the purpose of the house of God. So how are we to conduct ourselves as the house of God? We'll notice the instruction and then the nature and then the purpose of the house of God. The instruction, first of all, for the house of God is noted with the direction of the instruction and then a review of the instruction. Very important, but I want to try to say this as simply as I can. It's very important that we listen to the divine instruction that is given to us by the Word of God for how we ought to conduct ourselves as the house of God. We must submit ourselves to the revelation of the Word of God. And we can say perhaps somewhat blatantly for shock value, the church is not in need of creativity. The church is not in need of some new gimmick. The church is not in need of committees and of subcommittees to analyze new ways of appealing to the masses. What the church is most in need of is humble, submissive hearts of discernment that will come to the pages of Holy Scripture asking, what does the Lord have to say? Paul doesn't say, Timothy, when I get to meet you face to face, I've come up with ten techniques to how to build the churches. But he simply says, when I get there, when I see you face to face, I hope to give you further instruction. But if I'm delayed, I write these things. Notice that. These things which are to order how you conduct yourself in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This direction is instructed primarily to the office bearers. Uh, The office bearers, as we said last Sunday, set the pace. They set the spiritual barometer. But by extension, because these are what we've often referred to, and this isn't original with us, the pastoral epistles are also mandate epistles. So we speak about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus as being pastoral epistles because they're written, of course, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they're written by an older pastor, Paul, to a younger pastor, whether that be Timothy or Titus. So it's pastor to pastor, senior pastor talking to uh, the younger pastor. But these epistles would not have been read in private just by Timothy nor just by Titus. But rather, what Paul does underneath the leading of the Holy Spirit is uses a very common form of a Roman epistle, a mandate epistle. And what a mandate epistle usually was, was an epistle that was written from a superior officer to an inferior officer. So they were very common within the Roman military. So a high-ranking military officer would write a mandate epistle to a lower-ranking military officer. And within that mandate epistle, there would be the clear delegation of duties. So the higher officer would say to the lower officer, this is what you are to do. And that epistle would then be read publicly in the presence of the entire military company that the lower officer was in charge of. Uh, So this, whether it be Timothy or whether it be Titus, this epistle would have been received by Timothy and Titus, but would have been read publicly in the presence of the entire church. And that brings out this point of application. Yes, the office bearers of this congregation have a solemn responsibility to fulfill their office worthily by the grace of God so that they might set the pace or the spiritual 
barometer of the congregation, but every single member of the church has a role to play. Every single member of the church. Whether that be the oldest member of the church, or whether that be the youngest member of the church. And this begins to introduce us to this whole idea that the church it should not be just a fossilized museum of curiosity and of passing interest, but the church is a living organism. It is a body. And Paul Alsworth talks about this. A body with many members. And you can think of your physical body. And boys and girls, you have all kinds of different parts to your body. You have fingers and you have toes. You have arms and you have legs. You have eyes and you have ears. They're all very, very valuable. They all have a role to play. So if you want to walk somewhere, typically... Unless you're being silly, typically you use your legs. If you want to pick something up, usually you use your hands. If you want to read something, your your eyes are employed. If you want to listen to something, your ears do the work. And likewise, within a Christian congregation, uh, there are many parts, there are many members, and each member has a unique gift and has a unique role. And following the leadership of the office bearers, Every living member of the church has to or ought to do its part so that they might influence the life of the congregation. And so just a gentle reminder uh, that we continually need to be aware uh, of a consumer mentality that when it comes to life in the church is an unbiblical mentality. A consumer mentality comes to the body of the church and says, what can I get out of this? And if my felt needs are not met, well, then I'm off to the next marketing church. In contrast to that, we need a more biblical approach in which we come to the life of the church and say not what can I get out of it, although certainly there are many benefits and blessings which come from membership within the living church, but what can I contribute? You see the radical contrast between those two different perspectives? One perspective says, what can I get out of the church? The other perspective says, what can I give to the church? I can testify to you on the authority of Scripture, but also backed up by experience, the members who come with the attitude of what can I contribute are the healthiest, the most pleasant, and the most spiritually advanced members. The members who have a mentality of what can I get out of the church are usually the most disgruntled members of the church. And so the instruction for the house of God is given, of course, by the Holy Spirit to the office bearers, but to all members. And Paul says to Timothy, and by extension uh, to the churches, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. Notice verse 14. These things. Well, what are these things? Oh, that ties us back to the previous context. And we just want to identify uh, a couple of what these things are. You can go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks, various terms, all applying to prayer, be made for all men. Uh, So the instruction is, for a healthy, mature congregation... There ought to be people who come to the activity of the church saying, I'm going to give my prayers. 
Yes, for the church and for the leaders of the church, but by extension, I'm going to devote myself to prayer for all men, especially those who are in positions, uh, you'll notice, of leadership. Verse 2, I'm going to pray for kings, and I'm going to pray for those who are in authority, whether that be at the state level or whether that be at the local level. And I'm going to give myself to the holy activity and the exercise of prayer so that God may providentially rule over the civil leaders of the land in such a way that we can simply, as Christians, live a quiet and a peaceable life. I reflect, I admit, upon my own actions within the past year, the year of our Lord, 2021. And if you could add up the number of minutes in which I complained about the leaders of our land and the minutes with which I prayed about the leaders of our land. I'd be ashamed, but I will admit that the complaints would outnumber the prayers. And there's a grave danger also with the use of social media and all sorts of outlets. Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things. That prayers ought to be given for those in positions of leadership. Whether that be at the national or the state or the local level. Whether that be in the civil realm or whether that be within the ecclesiastical realm. As the church, let us pray for those who are in such positions. Now if that sounds countercultural, the next point of application will be even more countercultural. You can drop down to verse 9. These things of verse 14 reflect back upon chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul writes, "...in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls." And there's also instruction that is given uh, to the office bearers that applies to the wife of an office bearer. And so what does the church need? It needs its members to be praying, and it needs its women to be humble and modest. I forewarned you that this would be radically countercultural. And so I don't ask you to just evaluate how the world receives this message. I just simply ask you, as I ask myself, is this faithful to the Word of God? Uh, notice uh, that... Verse 11 of chapter 3 reiterates this, The wives of deacons must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Uh, The health, the maturity of a local congregation depends upon the prayers of all of its members, but also depends upon uh, the humility and the modesty of the women within that congregation. Uh, Notice that there's also a word uh, that speaks to the office bearers of the congregation. And here we'll be especially brief because we've dealt with this last week. Uh, This is chapter 3, the words of application that apply to the elders and the words of application that apply to the deacons for their variety uh, of tasks. Uh, So it applies to everyone. And of course, you can extend this out with the household codes as they are known that Paul gives, for example, in Ephesians and in Colossians. And so there is application. What the church needs is also children who are obedient to their parents. And what the church needs is parents uh, who faithfully pick up the task of instructing their children in the fear of the Lord. What the church needs is husbands who love their wives and wives who respect their husbands. You know, sometimes I'm I'm afraid that the church is looking for some novel new way to impact the nations. And by looking for some novel new way, we forget the basic fundamental truths. The most powerful testimony that the church can give the world is faithfulness in the domestic realm and faithfulness in our interactions one with another. And so Paul says to Timothy, as the house of God, remind them of these things. 
so that they might know how to conduct themselves as the house of God. But that begs the question, what then is the house of God? And that ties into our second point, the nature of the house of God. The church is not this building. It's not the bricks and the mortar. Uh, It's not the drywall, the plaster. It's not the paint or the carpet. It's not the shingles or the concrete. The church meets within this building in this beautiful facility for which we give thanks to our God for the convenience with which we have and for the comfort with which we meet. But the house of God, the church, first of all, is the gathering of the Christian assembly. The church is not some inanimate object. But rather the church is a living organism. And and the members must be those members who are living. And, And when there is life, then there is growth. And it is especially the office bearers, the elders primarily, who are to stimulate that growth by applying the Word of God, the Word of God that brings spiritual growth in the variety of contexts, most primarily in the preaching of the Word, but also in the other opportunities for teaching. And so the office bearers, they they stimulate the growth and they guide the growth of the congregation by seeking to lead the congregation to the green pastures of the Word of God. But then also the congregation must edify itself and must edify one another. Uh, with this mutual encouragement and with this mutual instruction in the Word of God. Because ultimately it is the grace of God that produces growth of the church by blessing uh, the study of the Word of God and by the proclamation of the Word of God. I just want to move on and point out that uh, this idea of house and church, you'll notice uh, in verse 15, both words are in the singular. Paul says to Timothy, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. He doesn't say within the houses of God. We understand that there are a number, maybe you might even say an innumerable number, of local manifestations of churches. And Scripture also speaks this way, for example, in the book of Revelation, to the church of Laodicea, to the church of Thyatira, to the church of Philadelphia. And yet there's another aspect, and that is of the one universal church, singular. The house of God, the church of the living God. So the church is a unity that is made up by way of a plurality. Just as a family is. If I were a single man without a wife and without children, I wouldn't properly use the word family to refer to myself. I wouldn't say, well, I'm going to go out as a family and then just me, myself, go out. But when there is a wife and when there are children, then we say, well, there is a family, one family unit made up of a number of people. And so it is with the church. There is one church. And the doctrine of the unity of the church, while it is talked about in the abstract from time to time, practically speaking, is a doctrine that is often overlooked. Now, where does our understanding of the unity of the church begin? It begins within the walls of this meeting place. It begins with our our perception of who we are. We are one unified body. Well, what is it that unifies us? It is not just a common shared ethnicity. If that is what 
we believe our unity is. That the largest section of our church directory begins with the letter V. If we believe that that is our basis of unity, then I humbly submit to you that we are one step away from the Scolte house. A fossilization. Of people just driving by and go, oh, that's how they used to do church. Years, decades ago. Our unity is found in that we share one faith. And that we have one Lord. And that we have one Savior. And that unity goes beyond just this local congregation, but it must begin for us in this local congregation so that I look at you and you look at me first and foremost as a fellow believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we look at the elderly shut-in, unable to converse because of cognitive limitations. And, and we look at uh, the young infant child perhaps even now crying, and we look at them the same. They are one in Christ as the covenant people of God. This will be a radical transformation of our understanding of what we are as a corporate body. And then this extends. So, for example, when our prayers rise up for the church in Quito, Ecuador, a a church comprised of people that I have never met, And the majority of you have never met them either. We know that we are one. We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. We share one faith. We have one Lord. And when we think of the work perhaps going on in other foreign lands, and when we think of the inclusion within the church of those who come from other ethnicities, uh, who have their pedigree in other nationalities, we should not look at them uh, with a certain aloofness. But we ought to recognize they are our brothers and they are our sisters in the Lord. And it's only then that with true integrity and honesty we can say, Lord, we desire that the nations would come to praise You. And this is challenging for me and I suspect that it might be challenging for some others. Do we really desire the nations to come and worship? Well, what if through various practices, the nations were to gather here in our midst. Would we be comfortable with that? Would we be comfortable if the pews in front of us and next to us began to be filled up by human beings who were of a different nationality? Would we be comfortable if all of a sudden different ethnicities began to fill the roles of covenant reformed church? Or do we kind of like it that it's predominantly one ethnicity, one nationality? I ask the question because if we like it that we are predominantly of one heritage as relates to our nationality, again, the fear is that we are a mere step away from fossilization. The church is a gathering of a Christian assembly that is dwelt within by the living God. The house of God is where God Himself dwells. Now, of course, we believe that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere in the entirety of His being. But He dwells in a very special way. 
by displaying, by manifesting His covenantal favor within the house of God, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we just reference a few other passages as time moves on. Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22. There Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And I'm not suggesting that we need to hammer out a purpose statement and plaster it on all of our letterhead, but in our hearts and in our minds, as a Christian congregation, and especially this is a challenge to the leadership of this Christian congregation, we have to have some idea of what our purpose is. And the identification of our purpose must include the closing statement of Ephesians 2, verse 22. A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And our own self-reflection and our own self-awareness, we must recognize that that is why we have been called out of the world. That is why we have been redeemed. That is why we have been gathered together by the Word and by the Spirit so that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, in a spiritual manner, may dwell among us. And this is the very essence of the covenant promise where God says uh, in Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations. And this we see also is the consummation of that covenant promise as recorded in Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And so as the house of God, as the church of the living God, we are a body that is built together, that is congregated together, that is assembled together by His grace and by His mercy so that God might dwell among us. And that we might commune with Him and He might commune with us. Well, then this brings us in to our third point, the purpose of the house of God. And here we go back to what is stated there so plainly at the end of verse 15. The church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Yes, certainly our reason for existence is that we might be a place in which God dwells by His Word and by His Spirit. Not just so that we might, as the old children's Sunday school song has it, hide this truth under a bushel, no, but that we might let it shine forth. That we might serve as the pillar and ground of the truth. The idea, the imagery here of the pillar of the truth, and uh, arrived here early for the choir practice, not that I was going to participate in the choir, but uh, as I just looked at the architecture, uh, and boys and girls and young people, you can look, uh, there are these massive columns, the support structure, I'm not sure how many there are, I didn't count them, but you look up, you, you see them, and, and they rise from, I anticipate, a, a concrete foundation. And they go up, and then they come together, and there is the ridge beam there. And, and these pillars support the entirety of the, the roof, and they support all that prevents the elements from outside coming inside. And, and we would say that these support columns, these pillars... They're absolutely essential to this building. 
I mean, there are parts of this building that you could remove. You know, you could take that front row of chairs out and you could remove those and the, the real essence of this building wouldn't change that much. You could even get more radical. We're not suggesting that we do this. You could remove the carpet, but the building would still stand. But if you tried, if you tried to remove these pillars, well, you know what would happen. The entire building would crumble and fall. And, and that's something of the imagery. Now, I want to be clear that the church does not give authority to the Word of God. The Word of God has inherent authority because it is the Word of God. But what the church is to do is to hold up that Word of God. We read, for example, in John 17, verse 7, that the Word of God is truth. And so we are to be the pillar holding up in our communities, in the midst of our culture, that truth, especially of one only triune God and one way of salvation through the one Mediator and Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we pass by, notice this application. That is why the members of the church and especially the office bearers need to, with a holy zeal as a result of God's grace, be very careful about their reputation. Because as we hold forth the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God, if our lives blatantly contradict what we declare, the world laughs. And as we continue to address the so-called sexual revolution and the ongoing perversion within society, if we say one thing with our voices, if sermon after sermon comes forth from this pulpit and goes down the radio airwaves and goes down the internet ministry, and if, heaven forbid, but if our lives publicly contradict that which has been spoken, the devil is filled with glee and the surrounding community will laugh And it's one thing if they laugh at me or if they laugh at you or if they laugh at us. But we dare not have them laugh at our God. And so office bearers, but all living members of the church, we are the pillar of the truth. And we are the ground of the truth. And the imagery there is a base foundation upon which the pillar rests. And so if you were to go down into the basement, perhaps with an architect or with a builder, and if you were to identify where these pillars are connected, you know, they're not just set in the the dirt. I would guess that underneath every one of those pillars, there's a solid concrete foundational pier reinforced with steel. And it stands there supporting the pillars. This is the purpose of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of how many attack the truth of the Word of God. Well, of course, our ungodly culture attacks the Word of God. We see that over and over and over. Uh, We could also identify many a theologically liberal church attacks the Word of God, undermines the Word of God, perverts the Word of God. So there are many who attack the Word of God who then will uphold the Word of God? 
who then will proclaim the Word of God. You know, you might, you might be tempted to say, well, you know, in an earlier generation, things were not this bad. I'm, I'm not convinced that a former generation had it any easier. You think of when Paul writes to Timothy, immorality characterized the Roman Empire. Or you go all the way back, and you go back to the days of Noah. There he was, a preacher of righteousness, standing as the living church of the Lord Jesus Christ, him and his family. And in the context of all of that immorality, what was Noah doing? Of course, he was building the ark, but he was a preacher of righteousness. He was testifying to the truth of the Word of God. You might think of Elijah and his role and of the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. What was their duty? They were upholding the Word of God as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the pillar and ground of truth. And this is also our high and noble calling as this particular congregation. And by that, in no way am I implying that we are the only congregation doing this. Thanks be to God, there are many, many, many a faithful congregation. But our particular purpose for which God has given us an existence in this place and time and in this spot in time is so that you and I, that we together, following the leadership of our office bearers, might exist in a community that, yes, has a wonderful history for which we can be thankful about, but is also influenced by the growing, increasing pressures of secularism and of humanism, and that we might stand and not just bemoan the sad state of affairs, but that we might hold forth the Word of God, especially as that Word of God testifies to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice that that is the emphasis on verse 16. And here a word of caution to myself especially, but also to the office bearers. There's an old saying, and perhaps I don't have it exactly right, uh, that someone who is an expert in everything is really not an expert in anything. And here's the danger that the church tries to comment on everything that's going on in the world. When we do that, We lose credibility. So as a church, let us be experts in one thing. And that is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And as an office bearer in the church, let us admit there are many things in which we cannot even form an intelligent opinion. And so let us be silent about those things. But when it comes to the Gospel... Let us with conviction, with humility, but conviction, say, now here is an area that we must speak on. There is one God, and there is one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He commands all men to repent and to believe. And He promises that all who repent and believe will experience the full and the free forgiveness of their sins and have the right to eternal life. But He also warns, He warns through the church and through the Word of God that if anyone continues in unbelief, if anyone continues in blatant sin, that they continue to walk the road to destruction. And so let us be experts in proclaiming in a winsome way to the communities around us, but also within our own walls. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. I mean, imagine if we could... And I know perhaps this is a false dichotomy, but for illustration's sake, imagine if you met someone on the square and you had one conversation with them. 
and you knew you only had one conversation with them. What would you talk about? Grain prices? Well, those are interesting, but you only get one conversation. The basketball team? You only get one conversation. And I admit it, it's a false dichotomy. I'm just using it for illustrative purposes. Politics? The upcoming elections? Or the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think I know what Paul's answer would have been. I think he would have counted everything lost. And I think I know what his instruction to Timothy was. Preach the word. Be faithful in season and out of season. I'm not saying we go run around the square grabbing people by the sleeve and saying, let me present the gospel to you. But in our very conduct, and certainly when we gather together as an institution of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us know that we are here for this purpose. That God, by His Word and by His Spirit, dwells in our midst and gives us the holy and solemn responsibility to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. So let us commit to the reading of Scripture, the studying of Scripture, the knowledge of Scripture, the holding to Scripture, and also the proclamation of Scripture. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, uh, we stand amazed that You would desire to dwell with us and fellowship with us and tabernacle among us. We're thankful for Your grace, and we ask for much of that grace. That You would wash us and cleanse us from our sin. That You would renew a right mind within us. Also, as uh, relates to our very purpose for existence here in this place and in this time. Father, by Your providence and by Your mercy, would You enable Covenant Reformed Church to conduct themselves as they should, as the house of God as the church of the living God, as the pillar and ground of the truth. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.